Well, that was season four of Sharing Things. I'm glad to report that lots of conversations happened. Thank you to our 12 guests for their time, their thoughts and their stories. We wanted to end this run of episodes with a compilation of clips. Not quite best bits exactly, but moments that show the depth and diversity contained within our six conversations. So enjoy, reflect and see you next time. This is Noshirwan Aziz and Neil Forsyth. Nosh, you mentioned that like you feel that you're quite a shy person. So would you say that you prefer to be the person behind the camera as opposed to the person having their photo taken? Yeah, um, I definitely started that way. But I feel like with the debates and all and with my experiences in undergrad, I've now sort of built a good base of confidence. And now I do enjoy interacting with people. So I, I feel like the camera sort of also captured that transition, so to speak. But I do still prefer being the person behind the camera. Definitely. It's it's just a lot more fun. It's a lot more challenging to take a good photo for me, even if it's a friends or anything else. I just really enjoy taking pictures. So I went, I went to school in Dundee and um, we had a, a sort of school debate thing one day. And I kind of did it at the last minute. It was just in front of my class. And it was, so it was all pretty relaxed or maybe my year. Anyway, I just really enjoyed it. I found it really easy, kind of debating me a few jokes and things and a good argument. And the teacher said, well, we're going to take a few of you to a debate competition. And we went down to Durham University. And I just thought this would be a similar thing. You'd just do a couple of gags. Anyway, we got down there from Dundee and there was these English public school kids that were just these golden kind of people of incredible self-confidence. And I just absolutely crumbled. Wheels came off and I could barely get a word out. And I think I had a similar thing when I went to Edinburgh Uni, actually, from Dundee. I just found the confidence of some other students, and particularly maybe people that have been through things like the debating, was so kind of off the charts to where I'm from. And I suppose it is the kind of hobby that probably helps you with things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I would say it helped me a lot. You know, now in the in, over here for Masters, a lot of people consider me to be more on the confidence side, I presume, because those years of debating just helped transform me. I also remember the first time I had to speak because uh, I did more model United Nations. I remember I was representing Japan in a committee about nuclear weapons and I could barely raise like my flag. My hand was shivering. And since then to now, I just remember it's just been such a crazy uh, transformation. I'm really thankful for debating experiences. Yeah, you meet some very confident people. And Neil, where do you where do you think your confidence comes from? It's been kind of hard earned, I'd say. When I started out, I remember when I first started to get books published and going to do book festivals, I was absolute nervous wreck. These were tiny <laughs> book festivals. They're actually the hardest I, I find from doing quite a lot of events now. The, if you go and do something like um, Pitlochry Book Festival to 10 people, that's far, far more daunting than I've done like Edinburgh or Glasgow Book Festival to maybe two or 300. It's much easier because you just, you know, you only need 10% of the audience to laugh or engage and it feels quite a busy reaction but 10% of 10 people's one so you get, you've got one <laughs> one person reacting at an event it's fairly torturous so well, I remember doing early things like that and just being my, my, my now wife came with me to an, um, I think it was Aberdeen Book Festival and she often brings up gleefully seeing me I think I came out the toilet gave her a, this was before I went on gave her a thumbs up and then walked into a pillar because I was so <laughs> I was so nervous but I, was, I would be, yeah, I'd be absolutely pet, just petrified. But I don't know, you just have to keep doing it and battle through and start to get more 
more confident, I suppose, in yourself and, and realize that really with these things, make sure you enjoy it. Because if you're enjoying it, you'll be more relaxed. And it's hard to catastrophize these things when you keep doing them and they go okay. Because it's harder to convince yourself it's going to be this epic catastrophe when, it, you know, you're actually, well, I've done loads of these now and it sort of, you know, it usually goes pretty well or at worst it's fine, but. This is Dia Burkett and Alex Luthwaite. How do you think that the circus has changed over the years? Um, circus has always uh, been very dynamic. It's been around for just over 250 years now and it um, has always uh, been very as a kind of on the edge of popular entertainment has also always therefore uh, responded and sometimes set popular uh, trends so it has changed enormously uh, at different points in its history so the original circuses 250 years ago were all ground based and then they slowly over about the first 50 60 years went into the air um, and it was in the 1860s when the first flying trapeze happened, for example, um, which was a great innovation. And it was uh, in invented by a man called Jules Leotard. And he <laughs> wore a little stretchy swimming costume kind of thing. And that's the Leotard. Wow. It's, the Leotard is named after Jules Leotard, who was the first flying trapeze artist. So... So circus has been kind of the forefront. It was very much um, in the uh, late 19th century, the forefront of uh, women's emancipation at a time when women were not allowed to perform on a theatre stage. They could perform in leotards in the circus. So circus always had women performers long, long before any other live performance. They're in the circus. There were lots of black performers in the um uh, late 19th century too it's always been a kind of place for outsiders you know and I, that's something I really love about it the fact that that is it's very welcoming of outsiders and difference you know it's evolved it's changed it's wonderfully dynamic um different so the, the change has been enormous and welcome and thinking specifically about performance Alex do you perform any of your music um well not recently um actually no i have I, I had a youtube i have a youtube channel actually um that i started in my first year of high school and i i sort of regularly upload videos on that i think lockdown was was a good time for me especially the first one to just sort of spend 100 hours on a project and you know spend my time that way but my yeah some of my best memories are from performing uh, I had a I had a I was in a rock band in high school and we played a couple of shows and I think that's that was probably my my best night if I had to pick a best night it would be one of those shows yeah what was it about it that you enjoyed um I think it's sort of stepping out of your comfort zone and it's sort of it's a rare a rare experience like because I I'd say in normal everyday to day life, I'm I'm probably like a little introverted, maybe. Um, but I also love like just performing in front of like a big crowd. Um, and apparently that is that is a common thing, like to have that sort of brain. But yeah, there's there's something about being, I don't know, vulnerable in front of like so many people and then just 
because music's such an intimate thing that it just connects connects you and the audience yeah yeah it's similar to what Dia said about you know when you put on the jacket and you feel you know you feel powerful and confident so I just wondered Alex in sort of medicine do you think there is a kind of performance in that is there a performance element in being a doctor oh wow um yeah I I suppose there is actually um especially working as part of a team which is it's talked about quite a lot in in medical profession and they call it performing an operation I guess um in a theater yeah yeah oh wow This is Gavin Francis and Rose Meikle. So what what I think the students have got this year is lots of really good theoretical grounding, but you, you know you can't you can't train to be a doctor sitting in your halls of residence. So we need to get people out and into the community soon. Do you think that the world has changed throughout all of this? Oh yeah, absolutely. Kind of cataclysmically, really. I mean, it's been horrendous, hasn't it? Really, really awful. And I think at this point in the year, it's worthwhile. Um, you know, we're just a year since the first lockdown and we can all give ourselves a pat on the back for getting through it. Um, remind yourself that rather than concentrating on all the immense difficulties we're still facing to get on with what we do best as humans, which is kind of be gregarious and social, just remind ourselves that whatever we managed to achieve this year has been in the teeth of a pandemic, you know, so um, kind of reward yourself and congratulate yourself for for any achievement no matter how minor against these quite extraordinary odds that we've all had to face this year and rose i know that you know you've been keeping your your journal throughout this and it may seem like when you're writing it it's you know you're you're sitting in your halls of residence and it seems like it's the same thing but do you think it will be important in the future to to look back on that yeah definitely i think that was another thing that kind of made me want to start it was not only was I going to uni and turning 18, but I was doing both of those things in a pandemic, which not that many people can say they've done. And I mean, hopefully we're the only year that have to experience that. So I think it kind of motivated me more to want to do it because I'm not just remembering a standard first year. I kind of have like, we, my flat had COVID and I have like written down like how I felt when I had COVID, how I felt about being in isolation with, at that point, people I'd known for like two months. I'm glad I did it, especially this year. Mm. Probably heard that people say we're living through history. Rose, do you feel like you are? Yeah, definitely. Like I was saying, I think it's quite a unique experience, like being in university halls during COVID. I think I've got a lot of things that not many people will be able to experience and it's not all good having COVID and everyone being in isolation isn't good, but it is unique. I think it's important to kind of remember that, even if it's not very interesting or fun and you're just sitting in your house all the time. And we're going to need a lot of uh, sociologists to map out the effects of this virus on society for decades to come. What has made a difference to you over the last 12 months? What has sustained you? What has helped? Who has been your COVID companion? Friend? Neighbour? Delivery driver? Pet? Plant? Podcast? Tell us in a single photo and let's celebrate. Together. 
Search Edinburgh Snap Reunion 2021 and find out how you can get involved. This is Elias Fasaludis Nicolades and Tamiwa Fuller and Shaw. Like right now, obviously, we're all being a lot more introspective and it, it really internal, um, reflecting a lot on kind of like imagination and future. I, I'm also interested in kind of like cultural studies and this idea that we're in a kind of loop of nostalgia and that we, we aren't really imagining alternatives and i think that in in the spaces there's so many ways in which i am immensely privileged and i have a platform which amplifies my voice there's many ways that i am not um privileged and and able to have a platform and for those that have access to spaces such as you know for example i have access to men's spaces um, I feel like it's important to kind of bridge the gap of communication, of, of empathy, of solidarity. Like the question, why does it matter, is it's like the top of the, of the branch of the tree. And the tree has deep roots underneath it, kind of like just acknowledging that oppression and power. Yeah, <laughs> that's why it matters. Um, Do you think that social media has has a role to play in that that's a good i mean that's a good question for someone who's doing cultural studies like what yeah. is like culture like right now are we are we like asked to provide nine second moments of attention to diverse and ever-changing issues that require either hysteria or utter cynicism that's just what it feels that like that's mm -hmm. what social media contributes to does it give a platform? Yes, it does. Does it allow voices that would have been muted or silenced to be heard? Does it allow for conversations to happen across barriers, geographical, cultural? Yeah, but... <laughs> and, it, and it does all these things, but it also doesn't leave enough space or room for kind of nuance, right? It doesn't leave... I don't think it leaves enough not even like it leaves enough because I don't think these platforms were ever intended for us to have discussion. And I don't think discussion works very well on these platforms. I think it can work and um, you do have discussion, but I don't think it's the best way for us as, as humans, as people to have discussion about issues in society yeah it's like there's they're so fast-paced you know people write stuff and then it's gone right exactly and it can be very very easy for points or fact or opinion to be misconstrued if you don't get your words right but yeah. also and I don't I don't think this is a bad thing but I think we need to be careful a lot of people don't have access to these platforms, so we need to be very careful about the conversations. We cannot see them as the reality of the world we're living in because so many people are not there. And so we can't use them as like a, as a majority or a good enough target group or whatever. But also, so many of us do have these platforms and these accounts and it's 
so important and I like I'm a writer I love stories I love books for us to share our stories and to share our opinions and to find solidarity in doing that but there is not often or not always enough let me say knowledge maybe or understanding of the context of which we're having these discussions and the history of what we're discussing and I think you need that as well it cannot always just be this is my opinion this is my opinion this is my opinion that needs to interact or sit with fat analysis critique critical thought this is Lorna Dawson and Emma Aviate well, it's so important that the work that I do is for the courts so that it's objective, impartial, and any opinion or evaluation that I make is based on evidence, it's based on data. And we can see the importance of that in, in the current um, pandemic, the COVID pandemic. It's important that any decisions that are made are based on sound science, based on robust science that has been tested, and that you can rely on any evaluation that is made if the data that is based upon is accurate. The, the trouble is that, you know, the most ultimate important decision of someone, um, their freedom in court, that's absolutely imperative. It's just as imperative, however, that if you're making decisions that affect life and death decisions, such as the COVID pandemic, that has to be based on true science and actual data to build that knowledge base to make the policy decisions that keep us safe. So interesting that you say that, Lorna. Part of what I'm focusing on in the 1850s actually is them using the Salem witch trials and how no one was relying on evidence there and no one was relying on science and no one was relying on anything other than subjective opinions to persecute and to ultimately kill so many people. And that is part of the argument that the liberal Christians were making in the 1800s for accepting science. And that is the only way to get like definitive proof science isn't has no preference to one group or another it's not going to save someone if they don't deserve to be exonerated it's not going to get condemn someone if they don't deserve to be condemned it's really the people who are going to be making a difference on how that's interpreted a lot of the time and if they're able to actually i guess correctly <laughs> i don't know what the word is assess the science or the facts that are before them it is so relevant for today and that we need to keep that in mind and really rely on it because it's scary to see when people don't. It's interesting you talk about the the, the witch trials because there's a, a group of people and it's linked also with the Royal Society of Edinburgh and they're reviewing all the decisions that were made in Scotland where women were condemned to their death basically on a whim. It, it, it wasn't based yeah. on any any trial, it, it was basically on a whim and it was men that were making the decision that these witches were carrying out acts that were criminal, but they weren't. Yeah, it is really interesting because I know I've, I've heard about it and I've seen some of the things that are happening. Um, you know, the only sort of memorial that's really in Edinburgh as of now is just a little fountain up by the castle. But I know that there, there's a big push for reviewing it and looking back and, and really um, kind of memorializing what those women, well, not what they went through, but memorializing those women and some men actually. And also I think it's really important to highlight the follies of human thought that led to that 
and mass hysteria. And I mean, if anything's kind of given us some sort of flashback to that, I think it's been this last year, not only just with the pandemic, but definitely, I think you can see that with some of the political events that have happened, you know, in the US for sure. There's definitely, you know, your rubric for evaluating reality differs sometimes from other people that are out there. And I think, I think, I really hope that at some point we can all come to somewhat of a consensus. Not that everyone has to have the same point of view, at least. It can make these things seem a little bit less daunting, I think. But I think that's why it's important to communicate science, well, from my perspective, so that people who are making decisions in these type of situations, whether they eat healthy food, um, whether they travel, whether they recycle everything, or whether they decide someone's guilty or innocent in, in, in a court situation. It's a psychology. It's all also what those people have experienced in their lives yeah. that lead them to make whatever decision they make. But if it's based on science, we need to make sure that they can understand that science. This is Laura McIver and Nisha Sarko. There've obviously been the big life-changing events. Like I was working on um, 9/11. I was working that day oh. on our radio news bulletins. So watching that unfold was, you know, something obviously that you would never ever forget. Mm-hmm. Um, and listening to just the heartbreak and the the terror of what was going on was just, yeah, something that will never leave me. And just this last year as well, covering coronavirus has has been and and the thing for me that's been most important about our role in that is as I said before listening to people's stories um I interviewed a man recently and it just stayed with me for days who um he's terminally ill he's 38 and he's got two young children and he was campaigning to um for, for people who are on palliative care to be able to get the vaccine as quickly as possible. And he has actually now had the vaccine a couple of weeks ago. But speaking to somebody like him changes your day. It completely changes your day when you're and gives you, you know, pers- perspective that you just didn't have before. So it's always the emotional impact of the news that interests me and that stays with me. You know, I enjoy politics. I enjoy all the the cut and thrust of that too. But it's it's definitely at the end of the day, people's stories that interest me. Do you think that's changed the way that you approach life? Because I think when we hear about stories like you know, like this person, you know, um, I guess like has been you know has passed away from COVID, or this person is like terminally ill, or this person has lost a loved one to nine eleven. You know, you always look at the news and you kind of think, well, that that's happened to them. That could never be me. Not maybe not consciously, but you kind of you know have this idea that's like it just seems so distant, and then you don't really realize that it could happen to you, um, or you know someone that you love. Um, do you think that that's kind of changed the way that you approach things? Absolutely. Definitely. It it really has. You know, I come, you know, I used to come home from a difficult day at work and um, and stare at my children, my sleeping children and, you know, kind of breathe them in and just be grateful. It makes you, you know, it makes you grateful for sure. Yeah. And, and it makes you think a lot more. And yeah, it's perspective. It gives you perspective that, yeah. that I definitely think I might not have if, you know, in a different job. Sharing things will return in the autumn. In the meantime, stay safe, stay in touch. And if you haven't already, check out the Sharing Things Back catalogue that started way back in September 2019 with Prince Chakanuka and Kezia Dugdale. See you next time.
I hope you've enjoyed meeting members of our University of Edinburgh community. To connect with more, join Platform One, our online meeting place for students, alumni and staff of the university. To find out more, search Platform One Edinburgh.